God. We thank you for the spirit who attends us even now. And until the work on earth is done that you've given us to do, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And be seated. And open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. When I first came to chapter 15 in this series, I never thought I would be on it for so many sessions, but it seems to me that as I go through it that there's so much here for us to unpack and to own and to grow by that we stayed in it. You may remember two years ago, January, we started the this, this series on Romans, and it was because Diane asked me to do it. She owes me big time. <laughs> and now she's insisting on a review at the end. Now, last week, I gave a little quickie review, if you remember. I went through chapters 1 through 8, and then 9 through 11, and then 12 through 16 is the application. And Diane caught me in the other room after and said, I hope that wasn't the review. <laughs> that little tiny review is not what I had in mind. I think she wants, like, a couple more months. But it's interesting, there's so many different subjects that Paul deals with. And we even get, and uh, I, have, I have a great affinity for this, but we get a look into his personality and the things that he cares about. Of course, we know a lot about Paul um, from the book of Acts. You know, Paul's a very serious man. There's not a lot of I almost don't picture Paul laughing, and it's funny because I can picture the Lord Jesus laughing and enjoying company of friends. Paul is, I got him in my mind as sort of a, a serious-minded person. He speaks of joy, even in very difficult places, so certainly he's a joyful person. There's no question about it. He's not afraid to show you that he gets angry with people. He kicked John Mark right out of the missionary group. Sent him on his way, and Barnabas said, well, I'll go with him then. You go with Silas. And they split up. Now, they did reconcile. Paul told Peter off to his face in Antioch. Um, not sure I would approach Peter that way. I got Peter figured as sort of a big fisherman with strong hands from pulling in nets and things. Not sure I'd want to withstand him to his face, but, of course, by this time, he was a docile and loving servant of God, and, uh, and he was apparently wrong, and the, uh, the apostle was not afraid to uh, direct him. So Paul is a multifaceted person, isn't it? And some of that comes out as we look into his writing, and in particularly in this area, and much more so in the next chapter, where he starts naming all the blessed brethren and sistren by name. I included the word cistern because there's so many. By the way, it is a word. I checked on it. I've used it, but I never checked on it till yesterday. Cistern is a word. My spell check isn't aware of it yet, but I probably need to update. And uh, he's, he involved women so beautifully woven into his ministry. So did Jesus. I, I say, and I say this uh, in a... Uh, in a careful way, but Christianity was definitely the first women's movement. Women came into prominence at the time, and they had gifts, and they ran to the tomb, and they understood that he said he'd be there before the, the group of men understood it, so it seems. Um, but certainly in the next chapter, we look into the heart of Paul as just a great friend and a great lover of the church. But here, I'm going to read from verses 28 to 33. That's the, that'll bring us to the end of the chapter. And there's a couple of points um, I will make. One will be this concept of, excuse me, of indebtedness. Of indebtedness to those who have gone before us. Paul speaks of the people of Corinth. Now remember, he's in Corinth writing this letter. He's at the house of Gaius that sponsors the church or one of the great churches in that great city, all right? And, um, and he's there with a, another gentleman named Tertius who 
speaks for himself at the end of the letter because he's actually the secretary. I picture Paul walking back and forth and, uh, and dictating it to Tertius, the scribe who's, you know, fastidiously writing down everything the apostle says, knowing it's the word of God. And, uh, of course, Gaius is probably in the presence listening in, trying to hear what Paul's going to say to the Romans. And um, It's just such a human interaction, a human um, environment. Uh, and he's writing to another church from this church. And um, so we get a, a look into the interaction between Christians from, from the first century. And he names them. And we see them repeatedly throughout the book of Acts and, and mentioned in other places as well in the epistles. Um, so let's read from uh, chapter 15, verses 28 through 33, where Paul writes, Therefore I've performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, or rather, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from these in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. O Father, let us say amen with this beloved apostle for this expression of his love. Amen. And so, as I, I seldom preach a, a three-point sermon. My sermons are more like one point or two. I don't know if you've noticed that, but um, because I'm kind of long-winded, I don't do three. But um, so here, it's this concept of indebtedness, and then he talks about this other concept toward the end of this, where he says, strive with me in prayer. Now, we know about prayer, but do we, have we forgotten this notion of striving? And so I want to drive that home a little bit this morning because certainly the apostle, and as I said, seems to be a serious man. Striving is prayer, in prayer is something he does, and we see examples of that uh, throughout the New Testament. But he writes in verse 29, Therefore I've performed this and have sealed to them this fruit. I'm sorry, once again, when I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. And of course, he's planning this great trip. And if you remember, he wants to go to Spain. He wants to bring the gospel to Spain, to what's called the Iberian Peninsula. You know, the Iberian Peninsula where Portugal and Spain are, out there in the, uh, in the west end of the uh, Mediterranean Sea and bordering the Atlantic Ocean. And it's quite a trip. Of course, he's in Corinth now. He's saying he wants to go to Spain. He wants to go through Jerusalem, or rather, he wants to go through Rome. But first, he must go to Jerusalem, which is the other direction, about 1,000 miles. So he's letting them know his itinerary and his plans. And apparently, God wants us to know the plans of one another so that we can strive together with him in prayer for the success of of his mission. Now we can recall from last week's message that the apostle, he's not remiss to express personal desires. Yet he had some experience in the past, which I'll note, with expressing his personal desires, but being redirected by none other than the Holy Spirit, who's God himself. And on an occasion or two, he said, Satan hindered us from going to such and such a place. All right? So there are your plans, the best laid schemes of mice and men, as Robert Burns once wrote. Um, he has some experience with having his plans redirected by other forces, and in many cases, or in some cases, the Holy Spirit, and in some, even by Satan himself. He would like nothing better than to visit the brethren and the sistren in Rome, and he fully intends to do so. However, he has this pressing responsibility. 
to attend to first. Now, we talked last week, and we made this distinction. Duty comes before desire. We have all these desires, but if we're right before God, we accomplish the duties first. Right? And I believe, and as we expressed in prayer this morning, one of the brothers brought up, that meeting God at the first of the week, is, it's, it's just the perfect time for the Lord's Day uh, celebration um, of our salvation in Christ the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day. So he'd like nothing better than to visit them, but he, and he fully intends to do so, but he has a sacred errand that he must take care of first. You, um, uh, you may recall this from the book of Acts, when Paul and Silas and Timothy thought to direct their own missionary plans, Luke records this amazing phenomenon. If you're not aware, Luke, the, the author of the Gospel of Luke, is also the, the author of the sequel to the Gospel, which is the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So he writes, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now Galatia's in Asia. And they were forbidden to preach there. He never tells us why, but God had other plans. God's unfolding and unloading, you might say, the gospel in a very orderly way. If you remember, Jesus said, go first to the house of Israel, and then to Samaria, and then to the outer parts of the world. He sort of unfolds or unloads the gospel uh, sequentially. And maybe that's all that it is, 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 is God is, has other plans. He fully intends to do so. Um, Paul fully intends to go along with what the Holy Spirit is telling him to do. He never tells us how that happens. Like, how did the Spirit communicate this to you? He just says it. The Holy Spirit, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, and after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Again, he doesn't tell us how that happens, all right? But he's being... Spirit-led in a very powerful and recognizable way, obviously. In today's text, we can see that God would have us apprised of the personal sentiments of his, of his apostle to the point where the apostle, in penning the word of God, will tell us to strive together with him to accomplish his desires. So while at the same time giving us an example of Paul's priorities and that personal preferences must be subordinated to divine directives, the Lord's pleased to have us know the plans and desires of one another in the first place. And he sometimes determines that our own plans must be put on hold, duty before desire, as we said. The previous passage tells us about the service that Paul refers to. Um, It's the delivering of a, let's call it a care package, from the Corinthian church and other local churches in Greece, right, to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes this in verse 26, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, he calls this contribution a fruit. Why would he say that? Is because it's the product of the love of the saints. He calls it a fruit. Your love and your faith should have fruit. Um, And he's referring, again, to this sacred errand. Um, And then he writes, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia, two provinces on the uh, Greek peninsula, it pleased them to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. If you recall, there was a famine at that time in Jerusalem or in Jerusalem. Uh, Palestine, and of course Judea is the southern part of that. And the saints in Greece saw, saw it as their duty to contribute to fellow saints in foreign lands. We still do that today, don't we? Paul even spoke of a feeling of indebtedness toward them, towards them, and so he writes this, it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. They are their debtors. In other words, the saints in Corinth and Macedonia are debtors to the Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And I want to go through and remind us how we are all debtors to those who went before us. We are entering into the procession of the saints down through the ages. Oh, when the saints come marching in. That's for Debbie, who's going to 
Louisiana next week. You'll, I'm sure you'll hear that song, probably in the streets. So friends, uh, there's the famine in, in Palestine, as we said. Paul even, so he speaks of that indebtedness. And then he says, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty, he says, is also to minister to them in material things. So we have a doctrine here, friends. The duty of charity becomes a doctrine of our faith. It's their duty because they received spiritual things to pay them back in material things in which they lack. It's the sign of love. It's the fruit of love. And so uh, James himself chimes in on this. He's the pastor. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the pastor of that Jerusalem church, and he writes this in his famous epistle. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart, be in peace and be filled. (laughs) But if you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Um. So he goes on to teach that such charitable concerns are the mark of true faith, and they're the outpouring of love. Love doesn't have to sit down and consider, well, I haven't showed any fruit for a while. Maybe I'll give somebody something. No, love overflows. It's it's the nature of love, right? And so he writes, thus also, faith by itself, James says, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, it's not true faith. Faith alone is sufficient for salvation, and people get tripped up here. Faith alone is sufficient for salvation, but faith with works following is the evidence of salvation. The gospel of Christ was first heard in Jerusalem, and the message of the cross took hold in that city despite the opposition of some very vociferous Jewish parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, other parties as well, but primarily these two parties who made up, the, their, their members made up the members of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling, the religious ruling authority of Jerusalem, and they conducted the temple worship and such things. And so the first church was formed almost entirely of Jewish brethren. The apostles Peter and John preached to them within the temple confines itself. If you go back in the book of Acts, you'll see they preached in the streets right away after the Holy Spirit came upon them. We'll go through some of this. And they preach in the temple itself until they were no longer welcome. You may remember very famously at the beautiful gate of the temple, Peter went in and he healed the lame man at the temple. And everyone saw the miracle. And they'd seen that man all their lives going to temple services. And then suddenly he's jumping up and praising God. Um, Peter, of course, got in trouble for healing the man. Like most movements... Most great movements, historical movements, Christianity began within the bosom of a small group, in this case, 120 disciples in a rented room in Jerusalem. And why were they in that room? They were following the last command of the risen Christ who said to them, Luke 24, 49, with Jesus before he rose again the second time, he said, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You know, those words have been variously used down throughout the ages in what they what Christians once called tarrying meetings. They would get together and they would pray and they would form a prayer meeting and they would determine between them they will not leave until they hear from God. That's quite a commitment. These did it. If you recall, they were there, what, 10 days? They were there 10 days and God came. But you can imagine... You know, in the room with 120 people, I'm assuming it's a pretty big room, gathering together daily in prayer, and then I'm assuming going about their, you know, physical needs and things and taking care of um, themselves physically, but they tarried there with the same people, 120 people, for 10 days. And then in the great sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke writes of the fulfillment of the prophets, and we read this from Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, 
and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the great baptism of the gathered church there at Jerusalem. They were endued with power from on high, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ. If you will wait, if you will tarry, if you will pray with the other disciples, you will not go home unfilled. And so that's the great baptism. It was the fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist who said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and both were present at that time. And so the disciples were baptized in Jerusalem at the great feast of Pentecost. That was the great harvest feast of the Jews. It occurred 50 days after Passover. That was the rule. That's the scheduling of the feasts, all right? And that year at Passover, the Lamb of God was truly crucified, right? And so the seed, the blood of Christ, was planted as the seed of a future harvest. And so he uses seed time and harvest in the natural to symbolize seed time and harvest in the spiritual realm. And so... It occurred 50 days after Passover, and the seed was planted at the Passover that year. The blood of Christ was spilled on the altar of the cross. Friends, that was the true cross. The the, the cross, rather, was the true altar of Christ. That's where the Lamb of God's life was slain. Not on that hewn stone altar in the temple, in the holy place, where the high priest Caiaphas was sacrificing the lambs one after another for the pilgrim families as they came to the feast at Passover. That was inside the camp, inside the city walls. Outside the city walls in Calvary, that's where the true Lamb of God was being sacrificed. It's just the amazing symbolism from the time of Moses being fulfilled 1,500 years later. And so the seed was planted and then came the harvest And that Pentecost would reap a harvest of souls for Christ. And so we read, book of Acts again, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. You see, the Jews had to come from all over the empire, which is really the three continents of Asia, um, Africa, and Europe. And they had to come, and the men had to be there for the feast. And so they came from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, they apparently heard, even from outside, they apparently heard the sound of the rushing mighty wind. The multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born. And so this miracle of languages, it's sort of a reversal of the curse at Babel when all the languages were first confused. And for this moment of time, the Lord, by a decree, would unravel the languages so that everyone could once again hear the word of God. All the way back in Genesis 11, that great curse of Babel happened and men's languages were confused And uh, that was, of course, in the primeval era, thousands of years before this. And at this moment, they were given this great gift of speaking in languages that they didn't study, that they had never spoken in before. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, these are the men in the street, saying, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? You could always recognize a Galilean by his accent and by his clothes. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And so they were amazed, struck with amazement here. And Luke recites his famous list of all the provinces, right, and the cities of note in the ancient world, and Jews from all over the empire came to the city to comply with the law that all Jewish men must be in Jerusalem for the feast. Thousands came to Christ with Peter's first sermon. Thousands came. And so Peter said, 
men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, who would have still been well known to their ears 50 days later, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In Peter's first sermon, he preaches doctrine, being delivered the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, and you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. That's the gospel. That got the 3,000 of them to pay attention and give their lives to Christ. And so the gospel was first preached by Jews. The gospel was first heard by Jews. The gospel was first received by Jews, and it was first opposed by Jews. It came with miraculous power, we read. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The saga continues. Peter preaches another sermon. And then we read, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so the apostles were teaching them the truths of the gospel. That's what doctrine is, teaching. The fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The same religious authorities that thought they'd put the gospel to rest 50 days earlier during Passover by crucifying Jesus were enraged to see the followers of Jesus preaching the same gospel. You can't really, you, you know, you can kill the Christian, but you can't kill the gospel. So they were preaching the same gospel. And so we read from Acts chapter 4, And as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed. They were really disturbed that Peter healed that man. They were really disturbed that they're preaching the word of Jesus who they hung as a criminal. And they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now you have to know the Sadducee party that, that is the majority um, membership in the Sanhedrin didn't even believe in life after death. All right? So they were, of course, enraged. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. All the cops had to go home. So they put, threw, him, threw him into prison and went home because it was evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So we're increasing quickly here. The first gospel preachers were put in chains, and so they begin to bear the marks of Christ right from the beginning. And then we read, And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. I'm not, I can't recall the last time I felt that way. Rejoicing that I suffered shame. And then we read daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching, preaching Jesus as the Christ. They went into the houses of the Jews and preached, just as Jesus did. And so the believing saints throughout the world had reason to feel indebted to the brethren of the upper room. They brought them this great gift, the gospel story, the, the history of Christ's works in Jerusalem. 
And then they were endued with power from on on high, rather, power to preach, power to convince people, power to speak in unknown languages, power to resist opposition, friends, power to endure suffering, and power to continue in faith in spite of the suffering. And so now we can see clearly the meaning of verse 27 from our passage, that the saints of Macedonia and elsewhere felt indebted to the Jews who suffered for the sake of the gospel and for the saving of their very souls. Someone had to suffer to bring them to Christ. And now they're suffering. But their suffering is physical. It can be alleviated. So we can understand the apostles' steadfast insistence to complete this errand to show them that the saints of the world are content to suffer with them as they suffered first for them. Now, what you have to remember, and if you're very careful in your reading of First um, and Second Corinthians, you'll see the Corinthians, by and large, were not a rich group of Christians. They were giving out of their lack as much as out of their abundance. You go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he speaks about it. Giving out of your lack will never thrust you into poverty. For I have... I was young and now I'm old and I have yet to see his descendants forsaken or his seed begging bread. Hallelujah. So we're not only all indebted to these first saints in the same way, but we're indebted to the saints and martyrs and reformers since then. And I want to throw in the translators. I want to throw in the smugglers, so-called God's outlaws who took Luther's German Bible throughout Europe, who took Tyndale's English Bible throughout Europe. By the way, they used the same smuggler. They used the same printer and the same smuggler. (laughs) Who smuggled your stuff? I'm going to use him too. He did a good job. And of course, Tyndale died for this. We commemorate him at our Reformation Fair. And so even the blessed smugglers of the newly translated Bibles suffered shame and punishment and deprivation for doing the same thing. And that's why we never forget the names of the saints of our rich Christian heritage so that we can honor them for the things that they suffered for Christ and really for us, for all future generations of the church. They, in fact, showed us how to suffer. You rejoice in it. And so we pay it forward as the saints of Corinth are paying it forward by alleviating some of the suffering of the Jewish brethren who gave birth to the church. If we take the cost of discipleship seriously, we should be able to see that we too are debtors. We're debtors to so many who have taken up the cross before us. We should reconcile in our souls that our time of suffering may come as well. Maybe it's come upon some of us already. And I'm not just talking about suffering through sicknesses and things, but suffering for taking a stance in the gospel. We may have to pray, pay the price of discipleship in our own crooked and perverse generation. And so Paul could confidently say this in verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. That's confidence in the Lord. Paul does not want to come to them with his ministry unfulfilled. I'm going to do this first, and then I'll come in the fullness of the blessing, in the assurance of the blessing of of the gospel of Christ. He wants to come knowing that he followed the divinely prescribed plan for his life and ministry, And that that would become the pattern for all preachers, for all missionaries since then. Having declared this laborious task, he has one request. Pray for me, he says. Pray for me. And he says, now I beg you. Now I beg you. In other words, he's humbling himself before the saints of Rome. I beg you, brethren. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. 
So he's in Corinth. He's receiving this great package to bring to Jerusalem, but he's asking the saints of Rome to pray for this to be successful and for him to be able to complete this so that he can finally, on his way to Spain, come and see them. And this is the whole unveiling of his plan. I sometimes wonder if the saints of our time have not lost the very concept of striving in prayer, of interceding before God in behalf of others. I sometimes wonder if we've forgotten about that. Prayer can be kind of a quick thing. I notice myself just uttering quick sort of um, drive-by prayers. You know, And I have to say, we are in the Lord, and I think we can do that. But I don't think we can do that at the expense of striving. I think we can talk to God all day in the moment. You know, we don't have to have these big prayers. I've always told you, I pray for parking spaces. It's a great prayer. God always provides me a space at Walmart, way, way out in the, in the field. There's always a perfect space there. No one ever hits my, my car or my truck out there. And so I always pray. I, I told you, I, I got to Dunkin' Donuts one day, and I prayed for a space, and I drove around for two hours, striving until one showed up right at the front, and I went in. There you go. And I had a ticket. It was a handicapped spot. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Home Depot with Karen yesterday. We couldn't even park. Everything was, had the blue wheelchair symbol on it. I'm like, where do you park in this place? Um, so I prayed right away, and I found the spot. No, we, we pray. We pray for big things. We pray for small things, don't we? And, and we should. I mean, we're the children of God. We, we ask our fathers, our earthly fathers, for small things. We ask them for big things. And they're pleased to give them to us. And there's many parables to that effect that Jesus talks about. But I do want to talk about some of the direction Christ gave to us in prayer. Strive together with me in prayers to God for me. And I hope we haven't lost the concept that sometimes prayer requires striving. And then I wonder if some of us have not ceased to pray altogether. You know, that's the, that's the great benefit of Christianity. It's the outpouring of Christ's love, his invitation for us to enter the throne room by just bowing our heads, by lowering our eyes or walking down the road and looking up to the heavens, however you choose to do it. Paul speaks of kneeling on several occasions, I notice. Kneeling in prayer because it's a mark of humility before God. Even if you approached a, an earthly king. Um, you know, when, <laughs> when the colonists of America went over, and I think particularly of, uh, of uh, Benjamin Franklin, and he had to talk to... Uh, King Charles, he had to be taught how to go into his presence. They had to teach him how to bow. I think he had to bow three or four times as you walk up. You had to take a few more steps. You had to do this thing. And then you couldn't turn around and walk out. You had to back out. You know, I mean, I wonder if we haven't lost the, the sense of being before the king. And we want to be careful that we show some obeisance to him. Um, I wonder if we haven't forsaken the prayer for the building up of the church. That's what Paul's asking for here. He's not asking them to pray for him personally, but pray for his mission to be successful. Um, I wonder if we all strove as these saints are being bidden by Paul to strive for the prospering of the church. If we all strove for that, for the building up of our congregation. For the zeal of our pastors and preachers to continue to bear up under the pressures of our time. If we'd not be a far more consequential force and voice in our time. I wonder if, if it's just a prayer deficit. I don't, I don't know if we strive in prayer in the way he's asking the people to. And I'll show you some examples from scripture. I wonder if our zeal... If our striving in prayer could set off revival, the likes of which we saw in those days. Remember, they came together, forsook everything for 10 days to pray. And so we read, So when they had threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. Listen to this, because of the people. That's always the key. That's always the key to a great political movement, if you will, 
or religious movement or social movement or socio-political movement. The key is get the people, right? Since they all glorified God for what had been done. Win the people, win the kingdom. In all ages and throughout every political movement of history, the will of a determined public wins the day. Friends, long before nations were democratic, you still, kings and emperors still had to consider the will of a vast majority of their people. But in order to win the day, it might take some stress. I hate stress as much as the next guy, I really do. It might take some suffering. It might take some deprivation or hardship or shame or death. But you know, that's always been the strength of the Christian movement above all other socio-political movements in the earth. Who was telling me recently, and in Canada, they're considering a, a minimum five-year sentence for preaching the gospel or hate speech. I want you to know hate speech means the gospel. So don't be fooled by that. It's like, because you can't preach the fullness of it, because some of it might say certain things are bad that we're all supposed to accept today. You see what I mean? It's therefore hateful. That's very fearful. I think that um, sometimes it's well-intentioned. I think sometimes people think they're being really nice. You know, even though they're supporting things that God hates. But people like them, and so we have to consider that. And the gospel speaks about repentance. It speaks about stopping doing certain things. And uh, very poignantly, certain sexual practices. So we win the hearts of the people and win the kingdom of God. The leaders in the in the Jerusalem religious society, found no way of punishing the apostles because of the people. They had become popular all of a sudden. You can't just take their heroes and kill them and throw them into prisons. You have to find a way of getting around that. That's what's called politics. But unlike any other religious movement in human society, friends, Christianity comes with a guarantee. You have to remember, this is the great thing about Christianity. It comes with a guarantee that all those who lose, gain. That those who give, receive. That those who suffer are comforted, and those who die shall live. Only Christianity can come with that promise. And I'd love to be part of a generation of Christians that defy Francis Schaeffer's observation. I love Francis Schaeffer. I'm just saying he made an observation once that all of society, and he said the, the, the church has gone after the world in these things. We have two uh, cardinal virtues in society, personal peace and affluence. Don't affect my peace, don't disrupt my life, and don't mess with my money. Right? Personal peace and affluence. So long as our personal goals and virtues reflect those of the unbelieving world around us, any hope of revival is lost to us. You know, I think of, I have a couple of Christian friends. I've had a couple in the past. They went on short-term mission and came back very energized to work for Christ. And one of the, of the men said to me, you know, I loved it so much. When I retire, I'm going to do it full time. And I thought, what a flawed view of looking at life. Like once I've retired and my future's all set and my checks are coming in the mail, I'll go out to these poor people who are starving and I'll live for Christ with them till I die. I just, I, I get it. I get it. But I just thought the priority seemed skewed to me. It's like I... I don't dare suffer with them. I'll take care of business first, and then I'll go. And, you know, when, when you're planning things in the future for Christ, um, you have to be careful that you're, that you're not just putting off what should be done today to, in some artificial plan that you have for the future. Um, Christi Christianity comes with a guarantee, friends, and you can't lose. Um, unlike any other social or political or religious movement in human society, Christianity does not advance itself by electing leaders. 
It does not first, anyway. It does not start with a manifesto or an agenda. It does not start with protests or politicians or pundits. It's not enhanced by fundraising or securing donors. Any enhancements to the missionary spirit of evangelical Christians has always begun with fervent prayer. And so Paul begs them to strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Now, before we just embark on this, I want to remind us of some of the simple rules of prayer. And I don't want you to be self-conscious when I bring things up. Oh, maybe you should be self-conscious. I don't know. Maybe we, maybe we should. Um, but Le- Jesus lays down a, a few rules, a few directives in prayer, things that will aid us in prayer. Number one, I, I would say, and I'm, uh, I would just say from Moses, you can only pray to God. There's no sense praying to someone else. You know, people, Christians, pray to any number of other, I'm going to say people, or small g gods. But we only pray to God. And there's a number of ways to do it. Number one, pray honestly. Honesty is a virtue in prayer. Say what you really mean. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. In other words, there's fake prayers. Hypocrite is a phony. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. That's misprint if you're looking in your notes. It says seen by me. It should say seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They've been seen. Go home blessed that all your friends and relatives now know you're very spiritual and nominee be So there are religious phonies and phony religionists, friends, pray phony prayers. Their heart's desire was to be seen as devout, and so being seen, they have the reward. That's the answer to their prayer. You see, their heart's praying something different than their mouth, right? They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, Jesus said. The second thing is, is secrecy. Now, it's not abs- obviously we pray together, so it's not always secret, but that we ought to have a secret prayer life. I'm going to tell you, I remember when my father, who was not a Christian, but grew up in the Catholic Church and was um, on an aircraft carrier in uh, the Second World War, when they had a lot of chaplains and people who knew the Word of God, and my father had a working knowledge of Scripture, and he taught us to pray when we were kids. And I remember him reading this section. He knew how to open to Matthew, and this is what he read. When you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door... Pray to your father who's in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In other words, prayer is not for show. It's not to be seen. It's not something you wear. It's something you do. And then he goes on to talk about fasting, which is also done between you and the father. You don't go out and go, what's the matter with you? Oh, I'm fasting. I'm I'm so spiritual. You don't don't do that. You anoint your face. You go out. And when they say, why, why are you having a dizzy spell? You say, my blood sugar's low. You don't, you, don't, you don't tell them you're fasting, he says. You know, I, I don't, again, I don't want us to just be self-conscious about prayer. It's sort of like, just be honest. Just let loose with what you're saying to God. He knows what you're thinking anyway. And, and he says here, I didn't quote that part of it. He says, for he knows your needs before you ask. So I always thought, why don't you cut out the middleman, Lord, and just do it for me, you know? And, uh, but that's not how he does it. He wants us engaged in it. He wants us engaged. You know, don't be overly self-conscious. And when I say that, I, I remember a time when there was a, a prayer group. One of my friends was telling me about this, a minister friend, and he said, one of the men prayed, and one of the other men f- said to him, he, he criticized his prayer. He said, I didn't, I didn't like what you said. And he said, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> you know, you have to remember, you have to remember, you are actually talking to somebody. We get very preachy in our prayers, you know. You may notice when I pray, um, I don't usually give scripture references. The reason I don't, people will say to me after, where are we reading in scripture? I'll say, oh, it's here. But I don't because I'm, I'm praying to God. I'm not praying to the people who are hearing me. So God already knows the reference. 
He already knows that Stephanus made them all up. They're not real anyway. So I don't do that when I pray. Number three, originality. We're not just supposed to say stuff. And when you pray, Jesus said, do not use vain, empty, futile repetition. As what? As the heathen do. That's those who don't know God. For they think they'll be heard for their many words, therefore do not be like them. He points to them as a bad example and says, don't be like them. What do the heathen do? They have incantations, right? Magic arts. They say the same words over and over, right? Covens of witches say the same things over. Catholics say the same things over. You know, you just keep saying and saying and saying, vain repetition. This is where doctrine and tradition come into contention. Tradition says, no, pray this prayer. We'll write it down, and this is how you pray. And by the way, I, I, making notes is fine if you're going to pray long, but I think you ought to have a different set of notes the next time you pray. So doctrine and tradition come into contention. Tradition says pray the same thing. Doctrine says be original, be heartfelt, say what's really on your heart. There's a whole faction of those who go by the name of Christ and pray nothing but memorized written scripts. A prayer isn't just a script, right? We're not in a play. If you think I refer to Catholics, you're right. But I refer also to Anglican Protestants who hold to a book of common prayer. They have a whole book, and you go through it each year. And it has some advantages in that you hear the word of God and the prayers are. The reason it was done, it was done in the 16th century by a a bishop named Thomas Cranmer, who was eventually martyred. (laughs) But um, they had Cranmer write these prayers uh, for the Book of Common Prayer because he was very glib. He was very good with language. He was very eloquent. And so they're beautiful prayers. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about them as as just beautiful prayers. There's nothing wrong with the sentiments. But what you're doing is you're robbing the person of his personal priesthood because he may have something else on his mind than that beautiful, wonderful prayer that you thought up. You know? And it was done because people were largely illiterate and uh, didn't know doctrines and would pray things that weren't correct. And, uh, And you do want to watch out for that, but you correct the person. You say, you know, we don't believe that. So when you bring that before God... Um, we have to help you with your right approach to God and the things he believes. That's why very often in the prayer meeting we go to the word of God to direct us first, and then we pray in accordance with the word. Um, And so I do speak of the Catholic Church. I do speak of the Anglican Church, which is the English Protestant Church, right? So you can either make your own petitions to God or you can make someone else's. It takes spiritual acrobatics for these churches to squirm past the Lord's instruction in the area of vain repetition. How do you, how do you construct a rosary where you pray, first of all, to someone who's not God, ten times, and then you pray the Lord's Prayer one time, and then you do the same thing over and over many times? It seems to me the exact thing that the Lord is telling us not to do. Don't be like them, he said. Um, I had a friend (laughs) who once said to me, as a man was praying in the pulpit, he leaned over and he said, I don't trust a guy that reads his prayer. And um, I do trust a guy who reads his prayer as long as it's his notes and not Thomas Cranmer's or someone else's. But, But I don't let evangelicals off the hook here either. It seems to me that when we're asked to pray publicly, much of originality goes out the window. You know, I think we all sort of... I remember one time Martin Lloyd-Jones really convicted me because he was, he was concerned that certain people were just copying certain other people in the way they prayed. And he used something that I do, and I was totally taken aback. He said, I have this friend or acquaintance or fellow Christian who always prays a certain way, but he learned it from another guy who prays that way. And he thought, I really think he should have his own way of saying it. And then he said, he always said, amen. (laughs) I do that. That's how I say amen. You know why? Because Pastor Ken said amen that way. And I thought it was cool. So, (laughs) So I've changed it to amen. But I'd just like to see some, some spontaneity. 
some originality. And if you say, you know, I'm really not good at that, I know because you don't pray that much. When you pray a lot, you'll get good at it. And so there are formal blessings. There are formal blessings. We, we say things like, oh, Heavenly Father, we just... And then anything can follow after we say that. My friend uh, Debbie Erickson, many years ago, was known as a great prayer warrior. Um, she had a ministry of prayer. They actually paid her as a minister to pray for the, for the, uh, uh, the church in certain movements because that was a great uh, conviction that she had. And so they supported her as a prayer minister. And she once said to me, where the world says, um, the church says, just. Just a thought. And of course, there are the formal blessings. Bless the hands that have prepared it. I remember the first time I heard that, and I thought, wow, I've never heard that before. Bless the hands that have prepared it. I guess Karen's hands are, is blessed as much as anybody in the world. Um, and then you hear, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. And you know how it goes. Do you know how it goes? which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. And that, you know, but there's nothing wrong with the sentiment, friends. But it becomes vain when it becomes repetitive. And I think the Lord is asking us to have some originality. What's really in your heart? What are you really trying to bring out uh, to God? We usually close with our traditional one-word doxology. It's one word. In Jesus' name, amen. And I think it should say .com after that. Because it's like one word. In Jesus' name, amen. And we wait, because we don't know the guy's done praying until he says, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I know we do these things, and maybe you learned it from me. But I'm trying to perfect us in prayer, and I'm trying to go with what the Lord is saying here. We don't always have to say the same things. So, I, um, so originality or variations of phrases can be gleaned by reading the prayers of scriptures. A lot of prayers in scriptures. The Psalms are essentially prayers set to music. There's the high priestly prayer of Christ, a whole chapter where he pleads for the church and for, well, for himself going to the cross. Uh, John chapter 17, the whole chapter. Um, but really, I believe that if we speak to the Father with the same focus and respect that we treat anyone else who hears us, the problem of sincerity is alleviated. We're actually speaking to someone. We don't burst into the presence and just stop spouting off our laundry list of needs. Come in before the Lord and praise him and recognize him. And calm your heart before him and know that he's glorious and you're not. And say such things. Thankfully, though, we have the Holy Spirit to perfect our prayers. Because Paul knew about these things. Romans chapter 8, once again. He intercedes with us in our weaknesses. Now, these rules apply to personal prayer, but they're also useful in corporate prayer. And the church must have corporate prayer. The Bible offers many such instances of prayer meetings where each believer intercedes for every other believer's needs. There's nothing so satisfying as to be in a prayer group with your friends and then they pray for you in your ministry. Or they pray for you in the thing you're striving with in your life with your family. And then we all pray together for the success of our, for our country, for the re repentance of a wayward nation and the redemption of it. We pray for small things and big things. And in this regard, I think first of Jesus in the garden, who brought his own inner circle of close friends and disciples to pray with him. You know, he had, he had 12 apostles, right? There was only 11 there because Judas was off scheming, right? But he, but he asked Peter and James and John to come with me. That was his inner circle. Come with me. I'm going to agonize in prayer. And they didn't get it. They didn't know how close they were to the moment. And as you know, famously, they fell asleep. And Jesus said, pray that you do not enter into temptation. So here they are in this prayer meeting that Jesus called with a specific group of people he thought would strive with him. And instead, they didn't get the moment. And then the Bible says, he went a stro stone's throw away from them. 
And he fell to his knees and he prayed. And he agonized in prayer, sweating so heavily it's compared to drops of blood. I always imagine him leaning over in the stony garden and you could hear the sweat splashing on the rocks before him. He was striving in prayer at a serious moment in his life. And the apostles didn't pick up on it. And they, and they should have. And we should. And so when he entered, or rather when he returned to them, he had to chide them for not recognizing the intensity of the moment. And he said, why do you sleep, rise, and pray? I called the prayer meeting, let's pray. He said, lest you enter into temptation. So let's look at some of these prayer meetings. Acts chapter 1. And when they had entered... They went up into the upper room where they were staying. And then he names them, all 11, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And if you know a different list, that's fine. Bartholomew is also referred to as Nathaniel and John. Uh, They have different names that they go by. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So there's a prayer meeting of all 11 apostles, right? And then it says, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers are James and Judas, or as as the Bible calls them, Jude, right? Other instances, in Acts chapter 12, very famously, Peter's in prison. He's in Herod's prison, Herod Agrippa I. He's in Jerusalem, just like Christ at Passover. And Herod is waiting for Passover to be over so he can try and crucify Peter, or execute him at least. And so we read, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And so across town in Jerusalem, Mark's mother Mary had a house, and all the saints were there, and they knew Peter was in prison, and they're striving in prayer for Peter to be released from prison. And as you know, very famously, the angel comes in, and he releases Peter, and he walks him through the town. It even talks about the iron gate and the sound, and the men were mesmerized, and they couldn't see any of it happening. And he comes to the door. Remember, he knocks on the door, and uh, uh, what's her name? Rhoda. Remember Rhoda? She comes to the door, and she's, and she's so excited that he says, it's Peter. She, rather than let him in, she runs in and says, it's Peter. And they said, let him in. So he comes in, and there's all the saints in the prayer meeting praying for Peter to get out of prison. And there he is. So when they had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. You see, John Mark is Mark's name. Sometimes he's called John, sometimes he's called Mark. Don't be confused. And it says, where many were gathered together praying. The prayer meeting is the... Friends, before the church was the church, it was the prayer meeting. It wasn't like it was all set up. Like people got a, had a place to come and they had parking spaces and they came in and you know there were men's and women's rooms and all these things. They came and there was chairs and AC. They just got together and started beseeching God. And the Holy Spirit was there to direct them on how to do these things. And of course they had... Uh, some of the apostles who had learned so much from Christ, they knew how to develop the liturgy that they would, uh, we would eventually all use, where we would incorporate the sacraments and the preaching and the breaking of bread and the prayers, like it said in uh, the book of Acts. Paul, Silas, Timothy came to Philippi, and we read, And on the Sabbath day we went out to the city, to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. So they went out. Friends, the worship meeting was a prayer meeting. And it probably broke out in preaching. And it probably broke out into testimonials at that time. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. You know the story. It's very famous from Acts 16. And later, going again to the meeting, Luke writes, Now it happened as we went to prayer, the famous we sections of the book of Acts, where Luke's finally with them. We went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune-telling. And you know very famously, Paul rebukes the spirit. He gets annoyed with it. We know the story how Paul freed the slave girl. It seems to me that many such things happen as the result and in the throes of corporate prayer. Things happen. 
We should expect things to happen. And then when Paul and Luke and some disciples got to Tyre, Tyre is in Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, and they found some disciples there. They all prayed together. We read, When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. What a beautiful scene. It seems to me it's the shore of the Mediterranean. It could have been a lake, but it seems to me they're up in Tyre, and uh, it, it had to be the Mediterranean. And so Paul speaks the prayers or Paul beseeches, rather, the prayers of the church in his behalf. And so do I, and so should we all. Our Father, make us prayer warriors, but let us first delight in being in your presence with nothing between us, O Lord, close together, joined by the Holy Spirit and the words that we speak and the words you have promised to receive and to bless We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.